Welcome to the Thought Leadership Project, a podcast by Jay Harrington and Tom Nixon, exploring how lawyers can turn expertise into thought leadership and thought leadership into new business. Welcome to the Thought Leadership Project podcast. I'm Jay Harrington and joining me is Tom Nixon. Hi, Tom. It's good to be back, Jay. Yeah, I know. I feel like I've been uh, cheating on you a little bit. I've had a couple <laughs> couple solo episodes uh, that have come through uh, recently, and so it's good to be back chatting with you. Yeah, it's nice to be a guest on your podcast, Jay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. Uh, but, I mean, you're having these solo casts for good reason, because they are uh, to the server, uh, to the furtherance of your book that you're writing. Yeah, yeah. As we were just chatting about before we hit record, um, yeah, these are the interviews that I typically do uh, when I'm writing a book. And now that we have our podcast, I uh, thought it would be a missed opportunity not to record those and, and publish them so that uh, people can listen to that, even if they never read the book, or if they do read the book, that they have more context and a fuller discussion to to kind of go back to if they want to dive deeper. So yeah, it's been cool. Yep, absolutely. Well, good yeah. job. All right, so let's dive in here today. Uh, we're gonna talk about several different topics, kind of an eclectic episode as we we tend to do. Um, but first let's start with um, AI and ChatGPT in particular, um, always a hot topic these days. And I, I kind of wanted to just talk about, I just contextualize this discussion because um, I'm gonna make an observation or, or maybe better put, raise a question. Uh, about you know kind of what AI's role should be and and will be in the future in the legal industry, um, but the the two relevant news items are are first something that I think everyone in the legal industry is um, aware of and ha- there's been a lot of chatter about it, which is the the situation involving a couple of lawyers in a litigation matter in New York, I believe, um, who uh, one of whom uh, used ChatGPT to do legal research and. Uh, asked some questions, asked for some precedent. Uh, ChatGPT came back with, I think it was six cases, and those cases were cited in a pleading that was filed with the court. And long story short, uh, the two lawyers who were on the pleading ended up getting sanctioned by the court because those cases were completely fake. Um, <laughs> ChatGPT, as it has a, uh, you know, I think an infrequent tendency to do it it hallucinates and makes stuff up sometimes. So you have to be very careful. And um, sorry, you might be hearing a jet flying overhead because here in Traverse City, we have the air show this weekend. (laughs) So if you hear roaring jets, uh, that's because the Thunderbirds are in town. But in any event, uh, so, so they got sanctioned and it kind of kicked off a firestorm of debate. uh, And in the in the industry about AI and and you know not relying on it for stuff like uh, legal research, um, so we'll circle back to that in a second. But second thing was this past week, um, Thomson Reuters, uh, I believe it was paid six hundred fifty million dollars in cash for Case Text, which has been an early adopter and I think was kind of given early access to the ChatGPT um, uh, open API or um, platform to start building and incorporating AI into its products. And so that was big news because that was a significant um, acquisition, especially in the legal tech industry and and caught, I think, some people by surprise. Um, so these, what these two developments indicate to me are, are the following, which is one, 
um there is a there's there's still a lot of angst about the use of AI in the context of legal work. And I think that case where the lawyers got sanctioned highlighted that. Um, and, and two, the Thomson Reuters acquisition highlights that, you know, despite that, um, AI is coming and, and it's already here to some extent in the legal industry. And, you know, big players are putting big dollars behind it. Um, you see big law firms working with startups in the space like Harvey. Uh, and and this, this is coming. Uh, it's not, you know, it's not stopping. We're not going to stop the development. It's going to be something that every lawyer is going to have to grapple with um, in the not too distant future. So the now on to the observation or question. Um, what I've been thinking about is in light of everything going on in the AI plus legal space, like what is the ideal tool? Like what should AI be doing? Because, you know, what we're what we're seeing here is, um, you know, arguments that AI is not capable of replacing lawyers and, and it's coming up with fake cases and that kind of thing. Well, for one, ChatGPT is not trained on legal data. And that's why the lawyers shouldn't be relying upon it yet. But, but what I think if we're thinking forward, um, you know, the ideal AI tools will be um, the following, uh, and it's probably best uh, summarized as both right-brained and left-brained, and and so it should be completely accurate, looking backward, right? Looking with respect to legal precedent, statutes, regulations, it should be able to provide completely accurate information, and I think it will, right? Once once it's all trained on the right data, but at the same time, and I think this is the this is the big issue. I think that we're still going to want AI to be wildly creative in terms of thinking and helping lawyers to come up with novel arguments to, in some cases, overturn existing legal precedent. So it's going to be a tricky balance to strike. But I think that you know, as the tools develop, we're not going to want to lose that creative aspect of the AI, the ability to work with lawyers to come up with new and interesting arguments um, that aren't based on existing law, but rather are geared towards um, possibly coming up with arguments that can overturn and um, and and work around existing legal precedent. So, it, it's just more of an observation than anything. But I think that you know the tools of the future will have both of those components, or at least some tools will. Otherwise, the the, the power of AI will be missed, and and missed opportunities will result if we don't if we don't if if we get so scared that we just need to have it be completely accurate and not creative. Um, I think that'll be a big lost, lost opportunity. Interesting. Yeah. Um, I have a couple things that I've observed. One is a third case that um, maybe not direct, directly related to the practice of law, more so content development is the class action lawsuit that was filed this week against mm -hmm. OpenAI and Microsoft because of what they're um, defining as content scraping, which is the practice of going out and getting the content from other websites so that it can create some sort of response, right? Which is what these devices do in part. In the class action, I'm not an attorney, you'll tell by the way I frame this, is essentially saying, I as a publisher, me for example, did not give you the explicit permission to use my thought, you know, my IP. Um, if you are scraping my website and regurgitating it for somebody else, that is a violation of my intellectual property. So that's going to be interesting. And I see that is from the beginning, I've seen just to step back this push and pull with AI. There's this pull, which is it's very alluring. Like the minute you find out what it could do, you're like, oh my God, I got to test this out. It pulls you in. And, but now there's 
all of this pushback too. So it's going to be interesting to see where the dust ultimately settles. My thinking on it is that um, where it's going to be most effective, and maybe this speaks to what you were saying, Jay, is not so much just this open source chat GPT as we know it today. I think it's going to be the companies that figure out a way to work um, various forms of AI into their existing tools. For example, Adobe Photoshop, right? So Adobe Photoshop is not a, an, an artificial intelligence engine, but it's incorporated some of this AI and this learning to empower a user to change a background, remove a person, you know, completely do things that the human couldn't do or would take very long for a human and especially a novice to do. But that's a tool they're, they're using AI and incorporating into their tool as a way to empower their tool. And I think that's ultimately where this is going. Um, but again, who knows? Yeah. Yeah. And I think you will see that in terms of, you know, you, you have yeah, OpenAI and ChatGPT are very much kind of a general purpose tool, right? It's sort of a um, the tool for everything, uh, in a sense, uh, right. it can write code, it can, it can write, um, you know, content, it can write jokes, all of these kinds of things. And it's, in it's large language model training data set is very broad and you're right. Tools moving forward will have much more narrow training data sets like tools for legal that are built specifically for the legal industry. And, and I think that, you know, that issue you raised about the class action lawsuit this week, I think you'll see more of that. Um, ultimately, I think that what you'll end up seeing is not too different than what happened with like streaming music um, and Napster and the evolution towards Apple Music, where Steve Jobs negotiated, um, you know, they, they had contractual relationships with artists and record labels and started paying, you know, royalties on those fees. And I think I think you're already seeing that. I mean, um, data sources like Reddit and Quora, I mean, they're ultimately going to be closing down access to their data and charging for it. And I think there's too much at stake. These companies will be paying for that data as well. Um, so I think you'll find a sort of a free market solution to a lot of this stuff that will resolve itself over time. We're sort of in the wild, wild west stages right now. Which makes Napster the perfect analogy. You're exactly right. So I, I can't tell you exactly what that's going to look like because it's not completely analogous, but I think you're right that there needs to be guardrails. Hopefully it's not, from my own personal opinion, governmental guardrails so much as it is market guardrails. So it'll be interesting to watch. The thing that I find very interesting as a content creator is its ability to create content, right? And um, you shared an article on, um, was it an entrepreneur magazine, Jay? Yep. Um, that segues into another topic in terms of how LinkedIn has re-engineered its algorithm, not directly in result because of anything happening with ChatGPT necessarily, but I think there's a tangential application because it's trying to, I mean, this is a pretty significant algorithm update towards um, showing preference in the algorithm for what they're deeming as helpful content or useful content. And if that sounds familiar, it should because Google's most recent algorithm update did the very same thing. Um, it's interesting because what I'm, if, if I'm peeking behind the curtain, my guess is what's going on here is, is not only does Google see chat GPT as a threat, right? Because if you're a, a bot's going out doing the searching for you, what's Google for? Um, but I also think that big tech is understanding that they are still in the service of pleasing human beings. And if they get to, if LinkedIn, for example, gets to the point where it's a platform where it just feels like a bunch of robots are talking to each other because everyone's using AI to write their content, what's the person there for? And I think people are going to, 
I think LinkedIn perhaps is afraid that people are going to tune out. So what both Google and LinkedIn are doing is saying, how do we sniff out AI generated garbage? How do we find real useful stuff, uh, helpful stuff? And how do we bring that to the top of people's feed? And just interesting, Jay, that you'll note uh, or that I'll note that you might find interesting is when I posted that article to LinkedIn, um, it the, the reach in terms of impressions was tenfold times anything that I have posted in the last six months, 10 times. Yeah. Yeah. And now did LinkedIn realize that that's the article they want everyone to read and I just happened to post it. So they spread it or was it truly helpful? The very first comment on my post was, Tom, this is a very helpful content. So I, I, I don't know what happened, but it exploded. So what are your thoughts? You posted it first. I gave you the hat tip. What was your major takeaways? Yeah, I mean, I think it was, I, first of all, I, I welcome the change. Um, I think that, you know, the points the LinkedIn uh, editor-in-chief was making in that article um, resonate with me in the sense of, you know, you had seen a shift, certainly, in, I think, the approach uh, to content creation on the platform. You see, uh, you know, if you've been on enough, and as we have, and sort of, you know, look in the feed and understand what people are doing, you see the evidence of engagement groups, right? Lots of people just sort of piling on into the creating you know, likes and, and comments, but but just doing so every day, the same people every day, like on certain posts, you're seeing the, you know, this, um, this kind of an approach where everyone's posting selfies, that kind of thing, which is, again, I don't have any judgment on that. I just, you saw the shift um, happening. And so I think that it makes sense where, I, you know, I want to see more content from people I've chosen to follow. I think that's one of the um, shifts that they're making with the algorithm. I want to see more knowledge and advice, which is, I think, is the criteria they identified as what they're going to um, optimize for. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I welcome uh, the idea that you know, the more, I, I think this is also discussed, the more you're creating for like a specific uh, audience, as opposed to a general audience, the more visibility that audience will see of your content in in the feed. So in any event, I think it's a positive development. I do think that um, it was interesting, actually, though, um, I, I will bring up, you know, because I'd, I'd been hearing a lot of people talk about, um, you know, I guess visibility impressions being down over the last several months. And we don't know exactly when LinkedIn rolled out these algorithm changes. Um, I, I actually had seen the opposite. Like I had seen a significant spike in impressions. I think over the last month and a half, um, I've had something like two and a half million impressions on my content. So uh, a, a lot of a lot of visibility. Um, and I'm not saying that's because of the algorithm or because my content was so great. It, sometimes there's just randomness associated with all of this. But um, but what was interesting was yesterday, sort of the day that you know we started sharing this article and more people started talking about the algorithm changes. Um, my yesterday in particular, over the last twenty four hours, my content just got completely throttled. Um, I think I had I posted yesterday as I always do, same time, same type of content, and I think after like an hour and a half, I had nine impressions on my post. Um, and what? Oh yeah. And, and then I had, um, scheduled another post to go up in the afternoon. Same thing. It was like four impressions. Um, and then, uh, I was, I was starting to freak out and think, did I do something to like violate terms and conditions? Am I, you know, getting shadow banned? What, what's going on here? Um, and then I saw, started to see more people on both Twitter and on LinkedIn 
sharing the same experience. Um, so at that point, I figured it's probably a technical glitch, which I think it ended up being. Um, I, you know, things are back to normal today, but it was interesting. You know, it was like, was the change that dramatic that I all of a sudden got, um, you know, my content's getting suppressed as a result of something I did. Uh, but no, it, it probably was just a technical glitch. But in any event, um, it, it will be interesting to see how this all plays out. And I think that on balance, I think for many people, um, it's, it's a change to embrace. Yeah. Well, real quick update, Jay. I'm going to make you feel bad about your nine impressions because I just checked on that same post. And as of yesterday, it had performed 10 times, you know, average. Um, it's now up to performing 30 times average, three zero. So something's going on for me. Like I'm not a viral poster at all. This thing is blown up. And to your point about um, sharing, you know, you mentioned the thing about engagement pods and they're maybe trying to sniff that out too. And mm -hmm. um, I did notice that most of the people who are commenting are people I have not seen on this platform in a long time. And I have a lot of second and third connections commenting some third plus in other words i'm not connected to them so that, that's just interesting observation i don't know what's going on with this post but uh i guess i'm, I'm joining the ranks of jay harrington in terms of blowing up online you're going viral man you're going yeah. viral now does that mean Good i get to you. quit work tomorrow how does it oh work? yeah yeah going going viral yeah they'll, they're gonna they're gonna send a check your way maybe a wire oh, transfer God, it's I'm uh, so excited it's awesome yeah <laughs> and then where do i put the word influencer in my bio right at the front um, yeah, I think so. I think you okay. start, you got to lead with that. And although you did tag me in that post, so I feel like I should get at least like 10% or something. <laughs> Not to mention the fact that it was your article to begin with. Yeah, yeah no kidding. What's <laughs> yeah. up with that? Oh, <laughs> uh, well, um, hey, it's right. team effort, just like this podcast used to be. I mean, it yeah. is. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'll send you all, I'll send you some of the royalties from all the advertising uh, right. revenue I generated over the last couple episodes. So. All right, it's a deal. Yeah. All right, cool. So uh, let's, Let's go to the next topic. This will be a quick one. Um, it's just, more, again, more of an observation. Um, as, as we talked about at the top, I've been doing more interviews. I've also been doing quite a bit of training for different law firms. And in the context of that, having interviews with lawyers who are participating, say, in like panel discussions that I'm moderating. And uh, and the, the word responsiveness keeps coming up in the context of business development, both in uh, from general counsel that I've been interviewing, a um, couple of new episodes coming out soon on the podcast with a couple GCs that I think people will find interesting, um, as well as with private practice lawyers talking about how responsiveness is such a critical critical aspect of their ability to generate business. And I think that's kind of obvious in a, in one way, um, which is you know if if there's one buzzword that people talk about or put in like the top three of what do lawyers need to be to serve clients? Well, responsiveness often comes up, but it's, it's not always um, put in the context of business development itself. So um, I guess what I've been thinking about through these conversations is just kind of this, this three-step framework of, um, you know, I guess developing and cementing relationships um, and and generating opportunities and and this is sort of a, a business development framework, which is first off, you, you need to stay top of mind, right? Um, you have to be out there visible um, because you won't, whether it be with an existing client or a prospective one, like you just won't be thought of for the opportunity to the extent that you're not top of mind. So, however you go about that, you know, you need to do it, whether that be staying visible through content creation or you know outreach efforts via email or phone calls in person whatever the case might be maybe some combination of all of those things you need to stay top of mind but then um that's not enough because and this is where the the responsiveness comes in 
whether it be um, you know an existing client with a project or a prospective client with like uh, reaching out to you uh, with a potential new opportunity, um, you need to be responsive to either of those requests um, because the truth is, you know, most buyers of legal services, you're not the only lawyer in the game, right? Even if you've got a long-standing client, there's other lawyers that are probably maybe even currently working with, depending on the size of the the company, for example. And you need to be in a position to like get back to people quickly. Um, and and you know, because if you don't think about the situation from like an in-house counsel standpoint, and this is this is coming from conversations I've had. What what they're trying to do when they're reaching out to the lawyer requesting help with a project is is not only you know to have the lawyer deliver an outcome, but also to get it out of their mind and off their plate and onto the lawyer's plate. So if you're taking too long to get back to someone in response to a question or in response to a project request, like they might just move on down to the next lawyer on the list, and you may miss out on that opportunity. And um, and so, you know, th- what that does in the third step in the framework is, you know, then you do good work um, once you do uh, capitalize on the opportunity. And then that just creates this positive cycle of um, stay top of mind. You know, the more good work you're doing for client, the more you're top of mind for them, the more, you know, the more that you respond in a timely manner to requests, uh, the more likely they are to get that opportunity. And then you do more good work and that cycle kind of repeats. And over time, you can start eliminating those other lawyers from consideration the more you kind of repeat this pattern over and over. So again, it's sort of simple and obvious, but it's just also something I think it's important to think about. Like just because you have an opportunity sitting in your email inbox, like you've got to capitalize on it. You have to be responsive. Um, otherwise, you very well may miss out on the opportunity. So in any event, just a quick run through that. That's it's just I've heard the word responsive um, in the context of business development, probably, you know, from 10 different people over the last two weeks. So I just thought I would just highlight that here in our conversation. And when you did hear it those 10 times, was it always in the context of you must be responsive? Was it sort of just advocating for being responsive and get being quick to get back to people? Yeah. 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 Basically. I mean, it's just like, it's just such a, it, it's something that's so highly valued by clients that it's just, bears repeating over and over. And it doesn't necessarily mean that you have to drop everything and like jump on something immediately. Sometimes that is required, right? Um, but it at least requires like a, you know, unfortunately, um for lawyers, because things are hot and oftentimes urgent, like you do have to stay connected probably more than you might wish to. And that's part of the nature of private practice of law particularly if you want to develop a book of business filled with loyal clients who um, feel like they can count on you and view you as a trusted advisor. And like I was starting to say, it doesn't necessarily mean you need to jump on and, and provide the answer or complete the project immediately. You just need to acknowledge the request and set expectations as to when, when, when you'll get back with a substantive response. I mean, that's another thing that everyone sort of highlighted as well. It's not about delivering immediately. It's about giving them comfort and peace of mind that you're on it and they don't no longer have to worry about it. Yeah. That was the distinction I was going to bring up because I've heard you mention that before. Sometimes, you know, it's responding immediately and providing a, a 10 paragraph response to try to solve the matter right away makes it look like, Hey, they, well, they didn't spend much time formulating this response because they got right back to me and it must've been easy. And I don't know. So to those people who are either too busy to respond quickly 
their fear of responding so quickly, so completely that it sort of neuters the the advice that you're giving. And then the third maybe objection might be, I don't want to seem too needy. I don't know if that ever comes out, but you know, some people are built that way too. To all of those, I think the answer is a quick reply, like you said, acknowledging that I've received this. This is really important to me. So important that I'm going to take some time to to think on it, to work on it, and I will get back to you on such and such date with an answer or further question or something like that. Because that, no matter what happens, you've allayed that person's anxiety who was just looking to get it off their plate into the hands of a capable attorney and just know that somebody's going to take care of it because I can't. So, yep, yeah, exactly. That's kind of the that's kind of the idea we're talking about here. So just um, just keep that in mind. I, again, I think the most significant thing that I learned was just in speaking with either private practice lawyers who used to be in-house or current general counsel at different companies, like it's, it's one of their top hot button issues. So, um, you know, it's not just me saying it, I'm just passing along what buyers are telling me. Yeah. Yep. Yep. So, all right, cool. So last, uh, last topic here, Tom, today, I know, um, you're, and I'm, I'm interested in your update because we haven't talked about it recently, but you're working on uh, a fiction book, your, your second. Um, and I'm interested to hear where you're at in this, in this process. And I'm working on a nonfiction book, um, another one, same genre, <laughs> business nonfiction for lawyers. Um, and I thought that it might be an opportunity for us, not necessarily to talk about the books, um, but the book writing process and maybe things that we've learned through the process, just observations, general thoughts on, you know, kind of where you're at and what, what have you learned or um, discovered through this new process? I think the biggest thing that I've either learned or relearned is something I learned about myself that I think is hopefully applicable and useful for other writers. And that is, you know, I, I used to quip the first time, um, with my pre previous novel, I said it took me 20 years to write and six months to type. And that that's a sort of, you know, tongue in cheek way of saying I've been kicking this idea around literally since I was in my 20s. And there were a number of different ideas. Boy, if I ever wrote a book, I would do something like this, or maybe I would do something like this, and I would do something like this. And then, you know, I just started like, once I feel I realized I didn't need a publisher to get my book out there like my creative juices started flowing and I finished the idea and it just flowed out of me. Remember I told you, it was just like, I was a, <laughs> it's going to sound goofy. I was just like a channel. It was just coming out mm -hmm. of me. I was typing away, got it done in six months. And then I, after that, there was, you know, it's a lot of work writing a book. I don't know how you mm -hmm. do so many, but it was like, I, I didn't know if I'd ever read another book, but I got questions almost immediately following the release of that book that were kicking around in my brain about my first book. And I just thought about him and thought about him. And one day something clicked and I said, that's how that would go. And again, six months later, I have the first draft done. And now I'm just going through rewrites and reviews and it's hopefully going to be out in August, hopefully before the end of the summer. Um, the lesson, I think, is something that I've been writing about lately, just in general, is that the typing isn't the hard, like writing isn't typing. You don't sit down and force yourself to write something and then figure out what you're going to write, right? You think about something, you solve an issue, and then it's so clear in your mind that, to me anyway, writing about it is super simple because that's just typing. Um, and I think that would be my advice to other writers, other aspiring writers, or people who just want to do thought leadership content, maybe, um, but don't feel like they have the time to write. 
do the writing in your brain or into a voice memo machine or on a piece of a paper when you're walking, when you're on the treadmill, when you're in the shower, that's when you do the writing. The typing comes later, and that's when the, the writing's already done because you've thought through it. So that, that's my what I learned about myself that I think I could pay forward to other writers. Yeah, that's great. Um, that's awesome. And I, yeah, that's that's fantastic. You think the book will come out in the next couple months? Yeah, I, I'm hoping August. So knock on woods. I, I, I'm done with the second rewrite. My editor is not caught up yet to where I am. So got it. Crack the whip on her who happens to be my wife. <laughs> <laughs> Good luck with that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I got to watch what I do and say. So yeah, exactly. Oh, I don't I doubt she listens to this podcast. I would imagine. <laughs> no, she doesn't. She <laughs> listens to the ones that I'm not on. So she's been listening a lot lately. Oh. <laughs> enough of you anyway yeah, yeah. Okay, all right so cool. what, what have you learned jay this is well, like your so, fifth book yeah 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 so this one so it's been a couple years since i put out my last book um and what i i guess i've learned in this process or been reminded of is that how much i enjoy it um mm. which has been nice i mean it's hard obviously and, and as you as you know um it's not an easy process but it's it's rewarding, I guess, maybe a better way to put it. Um, and sometimes fun. Like when you have a good writing day, that's fun. Yeah. You know, oh, other yeah. days when you don't and you're struggling, like that's not so fun, but you battle through it. Um, and I um and I was thinking about this where it's like we have we have to make decisions. We only have so much time. Um, and I, there's many times where before diving in and writing this book, I kept telling myself, look, book writing takes forever. You're going to have to put this immense amount of work into it and thought and energy. Like there's better uses of your time. And and there absolutely are, right? I mean, mm-hmm. I could be creating a new training program, like um, developing an online course. Like these things would take a fraction of the time that writing a book entails. However, I find that I don't do those things, right? I mean, <laughs> and so that's kind of an indicator. Like, yes, I know it could be more beneficial if you're thinking of like in terms of just monetary terms. But ultimately, I just keep coming back to this stupid process of putting a bunch of words on on the paper and then putting it out into the world. So um, so I guess what I've uh, what I've learned is that, you know, this is and this is something we've talked about many times before, like ultimately you have to you have to optimize and 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 devote time to things that you find rewarding and and even fun, like from a marketing and business development standpoint, because you'll do it. You'll actually get it done. You'll actually engage in it. I mean, I get up at five in the morning on a consistent basis and write. I wouldn't do that if it was if I was going to be sitting in front of a computer trying to looking at myself trying to record videos of me talking like in in the putting together a course. I just wouldn't do it. I know it. I've tried it before. Um, so I think it's just a good reminder of doing things you enjoy because you'll do more of them. And even if it's not the optimal strategy, you know, and I put that in air quotes because I don't think there is an optimal strategy. Um, you, you just need to take action and and taking action is a heck of a lot easier if, if you're getting um, meaning out of the process, uh, regardless, n- n- not necessarily uh, contingent upon what the result of that process will be. Um, and I've even taken it one step further, Tom, you may have seen this, but I've actually started taking on some coaching clients, um, lawyers who are themselves interested in writing a book, because I just I just like the book writing process. And I like thinking about and organizing the ideas and the chapters and coming up and discussing who the ideal client audience is and all of those things, the strategic things that go into book writing. 
um, I just like. And so, you know, I'm hoping to do more of that. And the, you mentioned, of course, the actual physical practice of, I shouldn't say physical, mental practice of mm -hmm. writing. We're rare breeds because like that, like that turns on my light when I'm, mm -hmm. when I know I've written something good, even if client, you know, thousand word blog, I get energized. Like, I'm like, this is awesome. Same with writing a book. I think 90% of the world <laughs> maybe said, you know, the last essay I wrote senior year in high school was the last thing I ever wrote because I don't want to ever write. So you're, that's exactly right, Jay. The point being that you don't have to write. If, if not everyone has to write, but you could podcast, you could create videos, you could speak like that. Speaking is like, that gives me chills up my spine. Like I don't want to do public speaking. Um, there's a lot of ways to get your ideas out there is the point. So lead into the ones, great advice, Jay, lead into the ones that let your fire up and you'll do more of it. You'll be better at it and you'll be playing to your natural strengths. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, and then I, I had one more Tom that I'll share um, because this has been a unique book writing process for me because it's the first book that I've written um, to kind of bring this conversation full circle uh, in, in the world of chat GPT. So um, I have, uh, I've been writing every word of this book. However, I have used ChatGPT4, you know, the paid version um, extensively in the book writing process. And it absolutely has amplified and accelerated um, the process for me. And I, you know, I think of it as a, as a, like an awesome co-pilot uh, and I've been using it for a, in a few different ways. Um, one is uh, research. And so research in particular, not necessarily like I'm not looking for stats and statistics and studies. It actually is terrible. It's, it hallucinates all the time. If you ask it for a study or a statistic on a topic, like it does half the time, it doesn't exist. I'm not sure why that's happening, but it is. But in my case, you know, I oftentimes will want to include and often begin like a chapter of a book with a story or an example or an analogy. And, um, you know, in the past, I have had to go, you know, read a bunch of other books, listen to lots of podcasts, just like sort of scour the Internet, looking for the right story, example, you know, historical example, whatever the case might be. And um, and ChatGPT has been really good for me in terms of surfacing, you know, endless amount of ideas, right? The great thing about ChatGPT is it doesn't get tired. It doesn't get cranky. Like it will just keep, you know, outputting ideas um, as, as much as you ask it. So that's been one um, nice aspect. Another is editing. So, um, you know, I am in the, so I have my first draft of my book done and it, it can be a very powerful editor um, for, for one's writing, right? Not only just like copy editing, gr grammatical stuff, but also development, developmental editing in terms of structure and ideas and that kind of thing. Um, and then the third thing would be just, you know, I, if, I, if I get done with a chapter and I feel like something's missing, you know, I might run that through ChatGPT and say like, do you, you know, I'll ask a specific question sometimes. Do you think that I should add something on X topic into this chapter? Or do you think that this is, you know, there's any gaps here that um, you're you're identifying that I should be thinking about in terms of adding or deleting content from this chapter? And lots of thoughtful, um, great 
responses in that regard. So it's very much been a, a like a co-pilot tool, but like I said, it's it's made the process much more seamless and easy. And I think, you know, as a kind of adjacent to all of this, probably, and I think long-term will be the most beneficial aspect of, of um, using ChatGPT uh, in, in the process of writing my book will be the fact that I've now written hundreds of prompts and read hundreds of, of individual responses and output from ChatGPT. And I think that I have gotten very skilled and effective at the skill of prompting um, through that process. And I think that's going to be, it's going to continue to be an increasingly uh, valuable skill uh, in, in many different respects moving forward. So, so that was the other thing I think that I've gotten out of it is like, if you want to learn how to use something, like you've got to use it and there's no, there's no better way to like use a tool like this extensively than to use it in, in the process of writing a book. Yeah. Interesting. Very good. Well, remember though, when you're getting those stories and, and examples back, just trust, but verify. Oh yes. Remember, trust me. Going yep. back to how we opened. I mean, I think it was Abraham Lincoln who said 50% of what you read on the internet is false. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Shoot. Uh, yeah. I've got that quote in my book. <laughs> <laughs> Great. <laughs> well, good, awesome. well, good luck with that. I can't read, uh, wait to read your book and hopefully there'll be people out there looking to read mine and um, we'll, uh, I don't know. I'm going to shelve it for another five, seven years. Like I did the first time you'll probably be back at it within a few months. We'll see. We'll see. Uh, all right, Tom. Well, good conversation. Um, I enjoyed this one and hope our listeners do too. So uh, we'll be back soon with another episode. Thank you for listening to the thought leadership project for show notes, additional resources, and links to the tools discussed on today's episode, visit the thought leadership project.com.